You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Uh, We've got a real treat for you today. Uh, We're joined uh, by an old friend, Peter Ernest, the museum's executive director. Uh, who, as you probably know, has done dozens of these SpyCast interviews on the interviewer side of the table, and we thought we'd, uh, we'd turn the table on him today. He's got a distinguished and, and fascinating career in intelligence to talk about, so we thought we'd explore that a little bit. Uh, Peter joined the CIA in 1957, retired in 1994. Uh, he spent many years overseas, particularly in Europe and the Middle East. He worked uh, in intelligence collection and also in covert action, Uh, going toe-to-toe with uh, Soviet bloc uh, communist organizations. He also served for quite a number of years at CIA headquarters, including as liaison to the U.S. Senate, I'm sure a challenging job, uh, and director of media relations, among other things. Uh, After his retirement from the CIA in 1994, he eventually came to the International Spy Museum, joining it in early 2002, about six months or so before we opened in the summer of 2002, and he's been here ever since. So, Peter Ernest, uh, welcome to your International Spy Museum. Good to be be sitting on this side of the table. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to join the CIA? I believe you were serving in the Marines when you first became aware of an opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit about that? When I finished at Georgetown, as commissioned in the Marines, I was in a program and serving in Japan. And uh, my then fiance was working for a CIA branch office. And so the people there learned about me, learned I was getting out of the service, and started communicating with me. What do you mean by started <laughs> communicating with you? Well, what it came down to was, would, would, uh, would Peter be interested in joining the CIA? Uh, Peter, by the way, had absolutely no idea what the CIA did. Most people didn't. Uh, There weren't all the movies and literature and so forth. And uh, so Peter understood that the CIA had something to do with with, uh, opposing world communism and the Soviet menace, and, and, uh, and it would also involve travel. So I thought that sounded interesting. So one thing led to another, and eventually I did, uh, when I came back to Washington, I was vetted and polygraphed and so forth. All of that fun stuff. I assume then early on after you joined the agency you went off to the location that we fondly know as the farm 
for training. Can you tell us a little bit, we can't discuss where the farm is, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about what went on there and, and what was it like, uh, you know, being a new recruit in the CIA in, uh, in the late 50s? Well, as, as I mentioned, there was very little known about CIA and, uh, and about the training and so forth. More of that has come out in movies and books. Um, we went to the farm. When I say we, uh, there were perhaps only 15 or so people that I even knew of in that class. We all took on another name, an alias. We trained in another name. Um, we trained in a variety of intelligence disciplines. Because this was at that stage of the Cold War, we trained in cross-border operations at night. Cross-border operations, you meaning, give me a little more on yeah, what you no, mean that, That's good, meaning uh, being able to cross the border as if you were smuggling, in other words, to cross the border covertly, so or black, as the, the phrase goes. And uh, we would be confronted with barking dogs and noise and people yelling and so forth. So it was very, the simulations were very well done. Uh, we were trained in other things, like uh, learning to do intelligence reports, intelligence writing. Uh, Perhaps the main emphasis was on what we now think of as interpersonal relations. In this case, though, interpersonal relations with a purpose, and that is uh, aiming to develop someone, as they say, to recruit them for, to provide information covertly to the CIA, the U.S. government. A lot of psychology involved in that, I assume, because ultimately you're asking someone to betray their country and literally risk their freedom and, and in many cases, risk their lives. Yes. That's, that's, you really have to know how to manipulate people, I well, would that's, imagine. Well, that's well put. Um, the psychology, in some cases, was directed against us because they were trying to understand us and if we were sort of up to the work and what we would bring to the table in being able to do this. We had some then and even later in my career um, we often consulted with psychologists uh, in terms of trying to, as we said then, assess people. What, what, what goes into this person? What is their makeup? What might be an incentive for them to uh, do something like provide information? So yes, psychology was a major part of, of that aspect of our training. So about how long did the training at the farm last? My recollection is that I was down there probably, um, I, I'm thinking somewhere in the period of, of six weeks, six to eight weeks, perhaps two months. It wasn't, I think the period is much longer now, uh, but it, this was very early before they had sort of uh, structured their training as much as they have in later years. So did you go immediately overseas after the farm or did you spend some time serving at CIA headquarters? No, I, I was actually the first of my class to go overseas. <clears throat> I was, uh, when I came back, um, I worked on the desk, as they say, which means you work in headquarters covering some country, learning how to look at their cables and what to do with them and how to handle dispatches and so forth from the field. So you want to understand headquarters a bit. Uh, I was on, on the desk very shortly before I was sent out. I was sent out. You mentioned I came in in 57. I actually went overseas within two years. Yeah. 59, by summer of 59, 
I was on my way. Well, these days, of course, we're used to the CIA headquarters, which is this complex of modern buildings and um, actually a number of outbuildings. It's all very shiny and new, and it's on a beautiful campus uh, in the woods, basically, out in McLean. I think you worked in a physically very different <laughs> CIA headquarters. You don't want to just tell us for a little bit about the building and what it was like as a place and what the environment was well, there. Well, it, it wasn't a building. It was a series of buildings, sometimes called the Tempos. They were temporary buildings that had been put up along the... Uh, uh, the, the the river, in effect, down along what is the the Haynes Point, al mm -hmm. down along that area, uh, Independence Avenue and Haynes Point, and they were a series of buildings that had alphabetical names for titles. That was R Building and S Building, and they were tempos. They had been put up during World War II uh, to be used temporarily. We were sort of the last tenants. And so uh, the buildings were about to fall over in some ways, and they certainly had the, a, a, a community of rats, I think, that had established themselves beneath the buildings, and you'd see the occasional roach. I mean, this was the end of the war. People were not, uh, well, it wasn't the end of the war, but the buildings dated from the end of the war, so they were really on their last legs. I heard once, and I don't know if this is true, but that when those temporary buildings were being planned during the war, that President Roosevelt arranged for a particularly small budget because he didn't want them to become permanent and want us to lose the National Mall and that area. So I guess you were, you were suffering from his, his perhaps wise decision. Yeah, well, in a way, that was very farsighted. Yeah, in other words, build the buildings to tear them down eventually. So about two years after your initial training, you went overseas. And I don't know how much you can tell us about where you went overseas, but did you go to Europe or the Middle East, or broadly speaking, where did you well, go? Well, I was in that. I, I, I was uh, actually I, uh, spent a number of years in Greece, which was, which from the perspective of the American government, sometimes was considered Southern Europe, sometimes it was considered part of the Near East, and sometimes it was considered, uh, uh, I was even at one point, it was part of East Europe, which is very strange. But that was the government bureaucratic view of where this country should be placed in, in terms of, of, the, of the State Department's geographical focus. So what was going on in Greece at the time? And what, were, what was the sort of work that a young CIA officer like you would have been doing? Uh, well, you, you, you have to remember now, Greece had gone through, of course, World War II when it had been occupied. And then it had experienced a, a civil war between the right and the left, to put it that way, the, the, the Communist Party being on the left. And uh, in 44, right at the end of the war, uh, it had been sort of an area of British influence. And uh, there was an uprising again, a, a breakout of civil war in that period, um, 47. And at that time, as you recall, the British simply weren't able anymore to sustain these efforts abroad. Uh, and the Americans, uh, that was, remember the Marshall Plan had come into effect, and also then the Truman Doctrine, which was aid to Greece and Turkey uh, to help them sort of get on their feet and uh, also have a democratic form of government. So I was part of the holdover from that period, still looking at Greece as an area uh, of, of great interest to our country, uh, as was Turkey, and uh, still interested in what was happening between the right and the left in that country. So you had gone overseas then, and now for the first time, really, you're undercover. Uh, and you'd be undercover through much of your career at the CIA when, whenever you were serving overseas. Do you want to talk a little bit about, first off, what is cover? 
sure. I think people have a lot of you know strange ideas uh, that you know perhaps you disguised yourself as a, a Greek government official or a, you know the, the Soviet colonel or something like that. I'm guessing that's not what happened. Do you want to talk a little bit about what cover is and how you live it, uh, as the term goes? How do yeah, you live your cover? I, no, it's a good question, and I think people can get very uh, confused by what you mean undercover because you have th stories of people living undercover. Uh, FBI, for example, someone living undercover and joining a gang or trying to get in the mafia or something, actually posing as a member of the group they're trying to penetrate or, or bring down. Um, cover for us takes many forms. Um, for example, cover can be what you, what you present yourself as when you're overseas. Uh, in my case, uh, I was, would, would be an American official, but not necessarily CIA. Um, you, you don't have CIA offices abroad in the sense that you can look up the office of the, you can look at the office of the attache, the office of the, of the second secretary and so forth, but there is no, you don't see an office of the CIA person. You're not in the phone directory disseminated around the yeah, country. Think of it as a virtual, almost a virtual office. So, it, it does. It does consist of people, uh, but but not with, without the CIA flag flying, as it were. And that was important then. It's even more important now because, typically, during the Cold War and now even more so, agency people have been targeted simply because they're CIA, and also because of the nature of the work. Um, in many cases, in doing what we have to do, which is perhaps making contacts with lots of people. We may not want to be known as CIA. If you, if you wear a CIA badge, somebody may not want to meet you or won't answer your phone calls. And so sometimes it's essential for us uh, to do our work not to wear that, that in, our, uh, you know, in our lapel. Now, I believe uh, you were married. Uh, you had a wife. Uh, did she know what you did? And did she play any role in sort of helping you live your cover and helping you do your work? Yeah, I think uh, it, it, uh, it would be near impossible for your spouse not to know what organization with and what you're doing. Now, that varied among officers. And uh, let's face it, during the Cold War, most of the officers were men. Now, that has changed gradually over the years. You have any number of, of women who are case officers, who are station chiefs and so forth, and senior, off uh, senior officials in management. Um, but, but officers did vary in what they might tell their wives or the degree which they might ask their wives to support them in their, in their activities. Did you put your wife to work? Yes, absolutely, um, because uh, a lot of my work involves simply meeting a number of people, socializing. Think of it, if you want to, as a little bit almost like lobbying, I mean, or covert lobbying. You're trying to develop contracts, contacts. You're trying to meet people of interest to you. Uh, because of their access to intelligence. And so uh, being able to move about in society is important. Now, uh, wives also were asked to help out on covert operations, such as maybe putting down a secret cache or doing something at night, driving, driving the husband to make a meeting in some wooded area or something. And many of the wives were of enormous help during, during the Cold War to the extent that we realized that we needed to train them, number one, so we began training wives, and two, 
that really helped break the glass ceiling because wives were involved in operations. It was clear that women could pursue those activities professionally and become case officers themselves. So I think the fact that wives did play such a role helped break the glass ceiling in the agency. It probably wasn't an issue in your first tour, but uh, later on you had children and they started to get a little bit older. At what point, if ever, did you tell them that you worked for the CIA, that you weren't with the State <laughs> Department or whatever it was that your cover was? Yeah. Well, it is an issue. Uh, and, and the problem with very small children is that if, if you, because you are there in a cover status and that's what they know initially, and uh, eventually, uh, if, if you were, it, we found if you tell very small children, you know, daddy's really with the CIA, number one, they may have no idea what that is. And, but you ask them not to tell anyone else, and they agree they're not going to tell anyone else, and of course they don't, except their best friend, okay, who happens to be uh, very close to the East German ambassador or somebody else that you don't want to know who you are. So typically, families would wait until the children were perhaps a little older, a little more mature. You figured they could, they could handle the information. Um, and I think for many people, they would wait until they got back to the States, where it was a safer environment to share the information. And I should say, by the way, that when we were overseas in that period, which was the 60s, um, children, we had to be very careful of children. Drugs were much more available there. It became a problem. Uh, it was a great temptation uh, for children. But the, politi the, the political atmosphere in the States was, of course, the, uh, the whole civil rights, the assassinations, the race, the riots, and so forth. Um, there were instances, and, and, I, and I peg this particularly to the Vietnam War, where a child might hear daddy's in the CIA and so forth, and that would not sit well. With the child. Yeah, because many of them say, well, that's very patriotic. Gee, I'm proud of what you're doing and so forth. They might not put it in those words. But others, uh, that could be a bit of a downer because of the anti-government feelings and so forth coming out of, of Vietnam, the Vietnam War. So it's a tricky business, conducting your life, you know, sort of parallel lives, if you Absolutely. will. Absolutely. I understand yeah. there was an occasion, and I don't know if this was in Greece or in another location, where you found yourself at a party and you discovered that you knew many people at this party, but various of them knew you under various different names. <laughs> you, can right. you tell us yeah. a little bit about that you, evening? You've been talking to sources. I have. Uh, no, that, that because I would go to gatherings, large gatherings, um, I, I specifically remember one occasion where uh, there, were, there were two people there who knew me under a totally different name and in a totally different status. So I just tried to very carefully keep them on the other side of the room from where I was and make my exit as I could. So You got away with it? it I got away with it, right. <laughs> um, after Greece, you went on to a number of different tours, broadly speaking, uh, in that region. Uh, spent quite a number of years overseas. And in the course of this, uh, as I understand, you had occasion to do quite a number of interesting operational things, some of which relate to some of the kinds of artifacts that we have in the museum, for instance. Uh, here in the museum, uh, we have a buttonhole camera on a coat, in this particular case, used by the KGB. But I understand you've used the CIA equivalent of a buttonhole camera. Yes, I have. If you, if you look at the photographs uh, of the Greek demonstrations taking place today, um, there were similar demonstrations when I was there. And at the time, we were 
particularly concerned about the, uh, the degree of, of uh, communist influence on that as well as influence by outside sources, like, outside forces like uh, the uh, Soviet intelligence uh, and other intelligence services interested in mucking about in Greek affairs. And so, yes, I did, I did actually wear a button, uh, an overcoat with a Pentax camera which, make, which comes out. The big fear that you have when you're doing that is that someone's going to bump into you and wonder why you're carrying this metal object under your overcoat. They may think it's a bomb or something. Um, but no, I did have occasion to use some of the, the concealed recording devices and the concealed cameras. I did have occasion to use those. The, my last 10 years of work in the agency were directed against Soviet and East European targets. And so that, these, those can be fairly sophisticated operations, often drawing on those kinds of, of uh, technical devices that you see in the museum. I understand you had something perhaps even approximating, if I dare say it, a, a bit of a James Bond uh, sort of experience at one point uh, when you, if I understand correctly, were at a party, I believe wearing a tuxedo in good Bond fashion and had to uh, install a bug in the, the, the house of your host. You, you, you make it sound like a lot of what I did was partying. Yeah. There, there, there were parties, yes. Um, <clears throat> no, this was all a pre-planned operation. Uh, I had gone to a very small gathering uh, at the place where my source had his office, and we had, we had reason to believe that the source had been doubled, if you want to put it that way, or that he was a fabricator, and meeting with other, other intelligence services. And so I So you, in, in short, then, you weren't sure where his loyalties really lay? Yeah, I, I wasn't sure. Yeah, okay. And so uh, in order to find out, I, in effect, ran an operation against my own agent. And uh, yes, my wife and I went. I was in a tuxedo. Uh, at some point, I excused myself and asked my wife, who raised the business of the wife, to keep him occupied. I went, I went to his office, which I, and I had been there before, lay on my back under his desk with a silent drill and drilled a hole in, in the area of the desk. I knew there was a cavity. <laughs> there were shavings on my shirt and uh, installed a bug. The bug at that time was about this long, and it was a wood, what was called a wood block. Can I just say for, for those who may uh, just hear this, he's yeah. gesturing about a, maybe a foot long or so? About a foot, yes. I had it strapped to my leg. So I took it off, put it in the cavity, uh, put the shavings in my pocket, straightened my tuxedo and rejoined the party and it went smoothly. And the next day we had a, a, a van in the vicinity. This is real Hollywood stuff, you know, with a guy sitting in there trying to record meetings. And we did, we did find out that he was in touch with others. So it was successful. Well, well, let me. But you try not to run operations against your own assets. Yes, yeah. something has <laughs> potentially gone very wrong. I imagine right. if you have to do that. So, so let me ask you. So you've got these great stories, and I'm going to draw one or two more of these out of you. I, I hope before we're done here. But uh, things like this, you know, uh, uh, placing a, a bug in somebody's desk while wearing a tuxedo at a party—is this a sort of everyday business for someone operating overseas, or do months and months go by, you know, or years go by, and you don't do this? How, how common are these are these sort of fun stories like this? Well, how much of this is 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 daring do, and how much really is just normal bureaucratic work? Right. I suppose it seems like fun looking back at it in retrospect. Um, Intelligence, particularly in the collection field, and the and covert action to a degree, it's, it can be very fast-paced depending on what's going on. Uh, don't forget, we were, uh, when we were working on, the, on being concerned about 
uh, foreign influence in Greece and, and leftist influence and so forth. Um, we had many contacts. We had many things going on at any given time. And in intelligence work, because of the very nature of it, it's secret, uh, people are taking great risks, as you spelled out, you're, you're often dealing with some sort of mini-crisis. Uh, things can get complicated. And even in, in, in working against the Soviet and East European target, you're dealing with, with things happening very suddenly, like a defection. And in a defection, suddenly someone comes to the doorstep, as it were, a walk-in, wants to defect. Your immediate reaction is, number one, are they, are they legitimate? Do they have access to what they say they do? Can we turn them around? And that can become very uh, intense in terms of operational activity. Uh, did it happen every day? No. Did it happen weekly? No. But certainly uh, there was more than one sort of incident and event of some intensity, you know, more than once a month. I mean, it was, this was very much the height of the Cold War. Uh, things were going eventually, of course, uh, there'd be the Berlin blockade, there'd be the, the U-2 incident, uh, there'd be, and then, of course, the Cuban, uh, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs. All that was going on layered over with the events back in the States, which many of us had trouble understanding and keeping track of, the assassinations, the civil unrest, and so forth. That was very hard to be overseas in that period. Kennedy and then Kennedy again, and yes. Martin Luther King yeah. and Malcolm X, and yeah. it was a very tumultuous yeah. decade. I, I can imagine it, yeah. it may have been yeah. difficult to be disconnected from your country, representing your country, but sort of disconnected from yeah, what was going on Yeah, you're in the there. trenches, but you're wondering what's going on in your own country. Yeah. Did you feel in, in your, your tours in Greece and that general part of the world where you served your time overseas, you know, you're, you're contesting directly with the Soviet and the Soviet bloc services. In your particular case, you were doing, I think, a lot of covert action operations against them. Did you feel like we were sort of ahead and winning, or did you feel more like, you know, the, the, that, you were having, that we were having to play defense? Sort of how would you say the balance, the balance was in those places and times that you were serving uh, in, in our, you know, direct competition with the KGB and the, and the Soviet GRU? The yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a good way to put it, um, that it was a balance. Some days you were on the defense, some days you felt you were on the, on the offense. I mean, it was, you were looking for small victories. You were very, also aware of small defeats. Uh, because uh, dealing particularly as I did often with media, uh, you know how fickle media is. And, and so you were dealing like, for instance, with the Greek media or the media in yes, other countries yeah, where you happen to be serving, right. not so much the U.S. And, media. And, and just look at the media in our, our country. I mean, right, as we do this interview, we're going through a, a lead up to the presidential elections in, uh, in, in just a short time. Look how quickly things change in terms of who's ahead, who's up, who's down. And when you're in a country uh, which is looking at, bo at both the superpowers, you know, they themselves are very quick to sort of criticize this one, criticize the other one. The smaller countries like that are very aware of the influence of, of, of the so-called superpowers and um, the degree to which they may be influenced by what's going on. I'm sure this is happening now today in Greece with all of the... Uh, Turmoil and tumult over the over the euro. Yeah, the debt and crisis. The bailout. Sure, you can see it. I mean, you're seeing seeing it play out on the front pages of our papers. 
since we've been talking about the competition with you know the communist intelligence services, the opposition, your opposition, if you will, uh, you've got a famous story that you like to tell here around the offices about having been literally taken for a ride by the competition once. Can you can you give that for the for the general public here who who haven't had the opportunity to hear it? Well, no, this this went. You have been dealing with sources. I am a former <laughs> intelligence officer too. <laughs> no, this was a, this was a, 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 this was simply. Uh, again, this was a case in which I was dealing with a uh, foreign official who was from an East European country, and they were allied with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And when you say dealing with, you maybe were working on this person, hoping perhaps to recruit we them? Had, no. We had struck up a social relationship, uh, which it was in my interest to sort of keep it out of the public eye. Uh, if, if you're too public, everyone sees it going on, and, and if the fellow agrees to defect or become an agent or something like that. Everybody's almost already aware of that. Um, so I tried to keep it out of the public eye, and I saw him only occasionally and only in out-of-the-way places. Um, I had an opportunity to see him in a, an area, a northern area, which w was totally out of the public eye. And I knew he was traveling there for business. And I said, well, you know, I happen to be going up there. And why don't we, if we can, see if we can meet for for dinner, something like that. He thought that would be a good idea, and so we did. And um, mind you, this was a small village, totally outside the capital by hundreds of miles. And uh, we had a very nice dinner. And I thought the relationship deepened, if you want to put it that way. And uh, as we were coming out, surprise, here are two of his friends who happened to be, just happened to be arriving at that same eating place and are, are about to leave and offer us a ride into town. Well, my choices were not many. There's no public train. This is not no taxi cabs. There's nothing. I can't even walk away. And so, uh, and also, I didn't want to, at that point, reveal that this was a special relationship. You didn't want to act guilty. I, I didn't want to act guilty. So I said, sure, yeah, that'd be good. Drop me off. So I got in the car. He got in the car. They got in the car, and off we took. However, we were not heading back into town. We were heading for the Bulgarian mountains, the mountains between Greece and Bulgaria. So I, this uh, is, is, I think, termed in places like Chicago as being taken for a ride. So I was being taken for a ride. Um, and, and a number of things went through my mind. One, you know, the, the obvious one, are we going to slow for a curve so I can get out of this thing and I have a chance? Two, what's going to happen? And uh, we just, the talk was very innocuous, and after a while we turned around. We literally turned around. Before you got to Bulgaria? Before, yes, and headed back down. And they dropped me off where I was in my hotel, at my hotel. And uh, first of all, it was very clear to me the game was up. You know, I couldn't, you know, obviously he had reported this. You couldn't meet with him anymore. I, so he the was... relationship was over. But also, they were trying to deliver a message. Don't, don't do this anymore. We know what's up. Okay, and I have to tell you, I got the message. So I would have <laughs> uh, one more before we move just briefly to your to your uh, time serving at CIA headquarters uh, towards the you know the, the 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 last third, if you will, of your career. You you also had one operation I can't help but ask you about in somebody's basement that involved flooding a basement. <laughs> well, you you've got a laundry list of these. This uh, is the last stories. one. <laughs> no, that was that was a very elaborate. Uh, uh, a black bag type operation, a bugging operation. 
in which there was a lot of backstory. We arranged for a car to break down and for people to meet each other and so forth. It was very elaborate and it was staged. And uh, on the weekend that this senior official in uh, the intelligence service would be out of town, we arranged, we, we broke into the house, got into the basement and were laying out a whole array of bugging devices. Um, I was the only one who spoke the language and could help out if something went wrong. The other guys were techs, technicians. And um, we, we were almost finished when the one thing we weren't was plumbers, although that term became popular during the Watergate era, we broke a pipe. Oh no. And within minutes, we were up to the bottoms of our souls in water. And, and we didn't panic. These guys are, are techs. They, they, they're willing to try plumbing if they can. And uh, we got it repaired. Uh, we got the water out. And uh, we got the bugs in place. And we made it out of there. But uh, that, that, might be, that might qualify as a wet operation. I know the Soviets use that term. But they use it when it's lethal. This didn't have any lethal unless we'd electrocuted ourselves down there. I can't help but wonder if this intelligence uh, uh, official whose house you were bugging wondered why he suddenly started getting mildew in his basement. <laughs> he, well, it was a very primitive basement, so it wasn't like furniture and books and things got okay. wet. Um, in the last, perhaps, third of your career, you spent more time back at headquarters yes. uh, than you did overseas, uh, working uh, on the staff yes. of what was then the director yeah. of central intelligence. Uh, one of your jobs, I just want to ask you briefly, is you were the agency's liaison to the Senate. Uh, when did you have that job roughly, and what was that like working uh, sort of between the CIA and the Senate? Um, and often sort of relations between the two, I, I imagine, were fairly um, strained. There were, I imagine, issues. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what was going on at the time? Well, I, sometimes when like? people ask what was my most hazardous assi assignment, I say covering Capitol Hill. Uh, it was not long after the church committee hearings, which were in the mid-70s, and the uh, then uh, uh, Legislative Council wanted to have people from the operations side dealing with the House and dealing with the Senate, heading up those staffs. Because he wanted the staffs to know that they were dealing with the areas they were particularly interested in covering. And uh, so the fellow who added the House was also from the what was called the Directorate of Operations. Um, so that was in the 78, the 78 period, so it was just several years after church. And um, relations, uh, uh, it, it's very edifying in some ways to deal, with, to deal with Capitol Hill because you've been covering other governments and, uh, and how they work and how things, how influence works. It's interesting to work with your own government and see how it works. And uh, is, it was edifying in many ways. Uh, the members uh, were... were uh, people like Jackson and Lugar and John Glenn and Goldwater and so forth. Those were very uh, um, impressive people. As, as I mean, you could put them in that category of statesmen. And so, as I say, it was edifying. It was uh, how the process worked, what a closed hearing is when you go up there and it's not open to the public. How, what is that about? How does that work? And uh, how sometimes things are treated in the media and it's very different when you go into a closed hearing with the senators, and you can be frank, and they can be candid. Uh, it was interesting to watch that process and be part of it. That must have been a fascinating, fascinating job, though, as you say, perhaps a little frustrating. Yeah, at it was during the period too of salt of the salt strategic talks. arms so limitation talks. Intense interest in in what the agency could produce 
uh, on that issue. Well, Peter, I could uh, sit here and pick your, your brain at, at, at length, I know. I'm, I'm sure there's a thousand more stories that you've artfully managed to conceal from us. So thank you again for coming to the International Spy Museum. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.